This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So when, um, when Bruce, I just heard Bruce announce that I would be talking about practice period during this talk. I think I said that yesterday in the practice committee meeting. And then I completely forgot <laughs> that that's what I had said. And I had this whole idea of what I was talking, going to talk about with regard to the practice period. But then I, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I will talk about practice period. But that's not actually what I was thinking about this morning when I was started to prepare. I actually wanted to talk today um, a little bit about, um, because today we're having this tree planting ceremony, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this thing called Dharma transmission. And I have to admit that I feel a little um, awkward talking about it um, because it's, it's such a secret thing. In, in it's like a, yeah, the ceremony itself is uh, completely secret. And um, I think the most that you can find out about it is in the book Zen Ritual. There's a chapter, the last chapter by William Bodifer, which I'll, I'll mention uh, throughout this talk. But he kind of lays out some of the some of the things about what Dharma transmission is, including some like, you know, I think he kind of, you know, lifts up the curtain a little bit and uh, allows people to peek in. So there's that. There's that. Um, that I'm feeling, but then also uh, just want to say about the tree planting that while it is, uh, it seems to be a custom, there's almost nothing written about it. I don't think there's an actual ceremony that goes along with it. We're just making it up <laughs> and we're making it up because, and I, I just want to credit that we had a, one of the board members um, a year and a half ago when I received Dharma transmission one of our board members said, we, we should have some occasion to mark this. We should have some kind of an event. And, you know, we had thought about it and talked about it. And the practice committee investigated the question of what, what could we do as a commemoration. And, and the tree planting came up as, well, why don't we do a tree planting and that uh, make that a public ceremony? Uh, so that's what we're doing. And I just want to thank Mary, who uh, suggested it, actually. And... Um, so yeah, so there's, there's this strangeness of going forward with a public ceremony for something that's not usually public um, and, and wondering, you know, I have this thought like, what does anybody here care about Dharma transmission anyway? <laughs> like really, it's such an abstract thing and, you know, you could look at it as, you know, from a practical sense, what a Dharma transmission means, practically speaking. And maybe there's just a, you know, from a practical standpoint, it's just that I've gone through some gate that uh, on the other side of uh, turns me mysteriously into a lineage holder who can pass on the lineage. Okay, so I just want to talk a little bit about some of the, like when I first came to San Francisco Zen Center in the mid to late 90s, I remember just here, you know, what's the difference between the robe colors and, you know, who's a teacher, who's not a teacher. And, you know, people who are, you know, brand new students were wearing robes and, you know, I didn't know any better. Nobody, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So um, it took a while of kind of, you know, maybe asking some questions just or just absorbing, absorbing the, the culture. 
um, that some people had become Dharma transmitted and thus they were called teachers. They were called uh, independent teachers uh, after going through this gate of Dharma transmission. Well, of course, I don't know about you, but uh, when I started practice, um, well, not even when I started practice, I think it's still true. Uh, I kind of come at it inadvertently with my discriminating consciousness and discriminating mind. So I would, as a new student, I don't do this anymore, I don't think, but uh, as a new student, look at the teachers that had Dharma transmission and then judge them. <laughs> uh, like, why does this person have Dharma transmission? <laughs> uh, because, you know, I think, I think there's this idea that, oh, once you've received Dharma transmission, somehow you're enlightened. <laughs> Uh, and that's just, um, you know, that's just what our minds do. <laughs> um, however, uh, it does mean that you've passed through some gate. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what that means and, and then what it means for Austin Zen Center, and in particular, what it means for me at Austin Zen Center, and thus, because I happen to be here, to you as well. Okay. And I'll talk about practice period and how that relates um, as we go forward as well. So um, Mel Weitzman, who has given Dharma transmission to probably over 30 people at this point, I don't, I, I think you could probably like look him up on Wikipedia and see his Dharma errors and they're very long, right? And they include, uh, they include Blanche Hartman, Shunbo Zanke, who is the founder, our official founder of Austin Zen Center. Uh, Mel also gave transmission to my teacher, Paul Haller and to you know just countless countless people norman fisher um let's see anyway i'm not going to go through the the, the list because i actually will forget a bunch of names and probably mess up a bunch of things but mel uh having given dharma transmission to so many uh dharma heirs uh, he speaks about dharma transmission quite frequently and every time i've ever heard him talk about dharma transmission he has talked about it as there's nothing that is transmitted. So why do we call it transmission? It's not like somebody gave something to me. And that's our usual way of understanding uh, practice in some sense, that we're practicing to get something or that practice will somehow yield some, something. You know, this idea, and there's, you see this throughout the stories of uh, our, our ancestors, our lineage, the stories of our, our family, uh, our cousins and our uncles and even even some aunties um, you know we, we see this idea that it's uh, you know it's not something that can be given to you or taken away from you actually um, and so so then what does it mean Mel talks about it oftentimes as an entrustment or a recognition of one's um, like a, a co-recognition of Buddha nature that goes both ways. Of course, in Zen, everything is um, paradoxical, or almost everything is paradoxical. And so transmission, we use the word transmission as this kind of mutual thing, right? And on the one hand, there's definitely a verticality to the relationship, right? There is a hierarchy. And as you know, Zen has a lot of hierarchy uh, within it. It also has horizontality. So just like with the paradox of the many and the one of our individuality and our interdependent nature, 
uh, form and emptiness, all of this is wrapped up in uh, what we call Dharma transmission as well. So in some sense, it is uh, like Mel uses the, the image of uh, one candle burning used to light another candle. Is the light different? Is it the same? This flame, is it the same or is it different? Kind of feels like you could get your head all twisted up in thinking by trying to come down with, you know, oh, it's this way or it's that way. Right. So in terms of what's kind of uh, what's involved in Dharma transmission, um, uh, maybe just let me pause and say that in Japan, Shiho or Dharma transmission is like one step among, I think there's like nine steps to go up to what one would call a Shike in Japan, which is like the top level, which I think there's nobody in the United States that has that level and nor will they get it probably because it's a different system. Um, sometimes you hear that, uh, I just heard actually the other day, uh, I heard the abbot of uh, Houston Zen Center say something like, um, she playfully called somebody with Dharma transmission a Roshi, and then she laughed and said, no, you have to, you have, to have at least 25 years before you're a Roshi or something. And I was like, huh, what is that? That's interesting, I've never heard that before. So, so there's a lot of, um, it's not, um, yeah, it's not a, a, maybe in Japan, it's a very clear path and it's uh, institutionalized. It's an institutional path. Um, here in the United States and in the West in general, um, we don't have the same kind of governing body that the Japanese have, the Soto Shu. So we have created uh, for Soto Zen, the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, which is an organization of Soto Zen teachers who um, actually in 2004, they, they created a ceremony called the Dharma Heritage Ceremony, which was a way of kind of acknowledging all the different lineages and all the different strains of practice that they all are under this umbrella of Soto Zen Dharma heirs. Right. What's involved in this is um, different for different teachers. In the stories, we have stories of, um, you know, one of the very famous stories from the Platform Sutra was the story of Huineng, who was illiterate, showed up at the monastery, became the rice miller, like he just pounded rice or, you know, ground rice, and uh, through various midnight clandestine uh, activities of writing poems and putting them on walls and, and so forth and having these kind of internal Dharma combat, he ended up becoming the, uh, the Dharma heir of his teacher in the middle of the night in secrecy. And then his teacher said, okay, now go run because if people find out, they'll, you know, they'll hurt you. Um, fascinating read, please. You know, if you haven't read the platform sutra, um, I wouldn't say it's a page turner, but <laughs> um, it's, I think it's also just getting back to Mel. It's one of Mel's uh, favorite things to teach on. Um, so some, you know, in some cases we have like in this, in the story of Huineng, um, Huineng didn't go through, like there's like these steps along the way that you could say, like, these are the st steps that one goes through in order to receive Dharma transmission. And there are steps, but there are not steps. 
So generally speaking, it means that the, uh, a teacher and their disciple, their student, need to practice together. And I would say that this is just actually foundational to Zen practice in, at all. You don't, I mean, maybe you have examples of hermits that go off into the woods and practice, but not so much in Zen, except maybe in China. And those people are, oh, they had a teacher somewhere who they, whom they practiced with. Um, so some years of concentrated practice with a teacher are is a kind of a general requirement uh, for receiving dharma transmission um and uh you know usually it's about 20 years i would say uh, roughly 20 years although it, it you know again it varies it varies depending on the teacher and depending on the student and depending on their relationship for the ritual preparation for the actual ceremonies, there are two ceremonies associated, or two ceremonies that happen within Dharma transmission on two separate days. And preparing for those ceremonies could be a two week long affair, where um, for two weeks, you, the person who's uh, preparing, would do a number of different things, uh, including making offerings to altars, uh, to the Buddhas on various altars. So paying homage and respect to, you know, Buddhas for one and Bodhisattvas for another. And then we have a lineage that stretches back from, you know, from, so my lineage, uh, which is, um, I can't remember actually what I am. Am I the 97th? Anyway, there's a line of transmission. It's all mythical, by the way but there's a line of transmission going all the way back to the Buddha. And of course, there's lots of gaps in that, in that line and interesting stories of how the family, our family, held this passing on the torch. Okay. So um, of these ancestors that we have, and we um, at Austin Zen Center, um, when we were uh, pre-pandemic, if you were there in the mornings, during soji uh there would be chanting the priests or practice leaders would go upstairs and at the kaisando the founders hall at the top of the stairs would chant the names from shakyamuni buddha all the way to and we would stop at blanche at zenke blanche hartman shunbo zenke so preparing for dharma transmission every day um and some of you when I was going through this process a year and a half ago, some of you actually joined me in doing this practice, which was fantastic. I really appreciate it. It was, it was lovely to have people in the Zendo with me, but for every single ancestor, I would make an incense offering and then do a full prostration and the doan would ring a bell for all of those ancestors. Um, in the, the historical, the historical traditional lineage, but also in a wider lineage that was compiled at San Francisco Zen Center with the help of other centers, that is the women ancestors. And um, because women were not at, at many different times in history, not allowed to give transmission or uh, not allowed to practice in the same way as men, it's not uh, strictly speaking a lineage of you know, a one-to-one -one 
lineage, the women ancestors, but we chant them anyway and offer incense to them as well in homage. So that's one of the things of the ritual kind of preparation for Dharma transmission. Another uh, preparation is the actual copying of lineage documents. Now, um, this happens on, you know, all in calligraphy, all on silks, and then wrapped up and put into a little, little bag and kept as these are your documents, your official documents, which in ancient times, you would have been uh, requested to show those documents to prove that you actually did train with so-and-so and that their name is on it. And, um, you know, that they, you know, the whole thing is done in this handwriting. It takes days to copy out these, these documents. Um, and when I was doing my ceremony, I did that at Tassajara in uh, uh, Cabin 5, which apparently has been the place to do that. And I looked at old wind bells and saw pictures of, you know, Ed Brown in his robes, receiving Dharma transmission, copying out his lineage papers in Cabin 5. So it's, it's uh, it, that's just a little tidbit. But there are these things that these emergent practices that become kind of the traditions. And we're always creating these traditions. These traditions stretch on. Um, you know, at some point, Tassajara won't be there anymore. Right? Everything changes. Everything passes. And so new traditions will be, will be built up uh, when that time comes. And then there's the two-part ceremony. And the first one happens in the evening sometime, and it's a, it's a very special precept ceremony. And then the next day, there's another ceremony that happens at midnight. And that's the very secret ceremony when the Dharma transmission is completed. So what does all this mean? And what is the purpose of, of doing all these things? Um, Norman Fisher talks about Zen in general as uh, he says it's not Zen is not an educational experience. It's not educational. Now, obviously, there's things that you learn along the way, and there's lots of things that you can study, right? You can study the sutras, you can study the koan tradition, the, the stories that have been many different compilations of, of Zen stories. Uh, you can study commentaries on the sutras and contemporary writers, right? But it's not an educational process that we're undergoing. It's actually, Norman says, it's, it's a transformational one. So what is it that's, uh, again, you know, if there's no transmission, what's, you know, and what is transformation, especially if one has, is already endowed, as in the Mahayana tradition we are taught, is already endowed with Buddha nature. What needs to transform? So one of the things that uh, Norman also talks about when talking about Dharma transmission, he, he kind of talks about the, this question of like, what does it mean to become a, a Zen teacher? Uh, number one, Zen teachers would, any teacher needs students, right? You can't have a teacher without students. Um, what does the teacher do with these students? What do they give? What do they impart? Norman talks about two specific things that are given 
The first one, and I think this is, well, both of them are equally important. The first one is faith or trust in practice. And what that looks like is the practice of taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in studying the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, in studying the Three Marks of Existence, the Six Paramitas, right? There's uh, an unlimited, almost, it seems, unlimited number of things to, um, uh, to say this is what practice is. But in the Zen school, I, I think it is very clear in my training, at least, that practice means, uh, you know, we talk a lot, at least, about practice meaning sitting, just sitting. As I've said in other talks, um, sometimes I've heard that in the West, people, uh, uh, Buddhist practitioners in the West, kind of glom onto meditation as like, this is what we should be doing to the exclusion of other things. And I think I've seen this uh, outside of monastic conditions. Within monas monast the monastic uh, lifestyle, I guess you could call it, um, there is a lot of sitting, a lot of sitting, <laughs> but uh, in equal measure, there is work practice. There's practice of just being together. There's, um, you know, these different forms that we take up. So, and in Dogen, when you look at what Dogen says himself about you know, he often talks about how, you know, the only thing you need to worry about is sitting, just sit, just sit and, you know, realize your true nature, right? But then he goes on to say that sitting has nothing to do with sitting, actually, <laughs> or lying down or walking or standing. Actually, sitting, just sitting is something that you do, not with your mind, you're not doing it with your thinking mind, but you're doing it with your whole body, right? And it's a matter of, of, maybe you can say like bringing your whole body and your breath and your awareness together, right. And sustaining that awareness moment by moment. Right. And when you, I oftentimes talk about uh, the Zendo as kind of like, you know, the Zendo as a training ground, it's like having, when you, you know, when you come into the Zendo and you find a seat and you bow to it and you sit down on it and you, you know, now are ready to start, start meditating. Right. It's like there's no distractions other than your own mind. And it's made even more clear because you're looking at a blank wall. So whatever is coming up for you is obviously coming from yourself. <laughs> and then we practice this way and we notice, okay, how, how do I stay present to what's arising moment after moment? You know, and that's not the goal, actually. There's not a goal of just stay present moment after moment, although you'll hear a lot of talk about that. Paul, my, my teacher, talks about this as continual contact, right? Having continuous contact with what the arising and passing of each mental formation, each, each sensation, feeling, perception, right? Just arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing and staying with it. But that's not the whole practice of sitting, right? You have to practice sitting by actually falling, kind of falling out of awareness because finding finding your seat again, finding your concentration again, you can only practice doing that by losing your concentration, by losing your balance, 
right? Only that way can you find your balance again. So it's this constant dynamic flow of falling out of balance and refinding one's balance, right? And we do this in this container called the Zendo. And maybe I'll say a little bit about practice period here, which is uh, this practice period is going to be the most unusual practice period I've ever done in that we are going to have to be largely online, almost entirely online in our practice period due to uh, the pandemic. While we are experimenting, we're on our first, uh, the first one day sit for the practice period, we're opening the side yard and uh, inviting a limited number of people um, because we don't have you know, unlimited space to be socially distanced. Um, but we're inviting some people who want to be there in person to come in person, simultaneous with having people also participate online. So uh, it's very experimental and we'll see how it goes. Um, but when we get together in practice period, practice period is called, the Japanese word for practice period is called ango. The on is, uh, means peace. Ango means kind of peaceful dwelling. And it's this, the, the feeling of ango is this, how do we come together for peaceful, harmonious sangha? So it's very relational. And uh, this gets to Norman's, uh, another one of Norman's points about what a teacher has to offer uh, is this together practice, practice. He calls Zen, Zen is together practice. We see this in, um, you know, if you've ever had a meal, an Oriyoki meal um, in a retreat, you'll notice that, um, you know, after we, you know, we chant, we all take our first bite together, right? When we chant together, we're all trying to chant with our ears, right? There's a kokyo who leads the chant. There's a drummer who, or a mokugyo player who's keeping the pace, right? But really we're trying to, we're all of us are kind of attuning to one another. That's together practice. And then the, um, the, the third thing that Norman, um, that I wanna mention that Norman says about what a teacher has to offer besides their faith and practice, this together practice is sharing one's life. Just sharing one's life. And that's hard to do in a pandemic. It's hard to do outside of a pandemic when everybody has different schedules and people are, um, you know, come and go and we don't have, like, we're not all kind of forced to live in a narrow valley like you do when you're at a, you know, at the monastery of Tassajara. Everybody who's there, nobody is there that kind of um, uh, drifts in and out. At least if they drift in, they're usually required to stay there for three months. <laughs> uh, some people don't, you know, I've, I've definitely been there where some, you know, people are like, well, actually, this is not for me. I'm going away now. Uh, the, the number of people who do that, who then come back later is probably more than 70%. <laughs> but people do, they, they go away and say, no, no, maybe not now, maybe later, you know, whether it's a relationship they're thinking of, whether they're just, you know, uh, just 
job questions. I want to actually save the world instead of be, you know, remove myself from the world. All kinds of reasons people have for saying, no, this is not the right time for me. Right. And that's all, uh, that's all part of uh, living together. Right. So this willingness to share one's life includes actually everything. It includes being there for birth. It includes being there for death, for sickness, for celebrations, for marriages, for babies being born, right? For everything, for breakups, you know, for the whole, whole lot of drama <laughs> that is a human life. We're there for it, right? For every aspect of one's life. And, you know, oftentimes people ask this question about practice discussion or dokusan. What should, you know, what's the difference between, you know, going to see a, a teacher or practice leader for, you know, a practice discussion? What's the difference between that and therapy? Right? This is a big question. And um, especially if nothing is off limits in terms of your practice. Right? I would just say that's a whole other topic that could be, you know, multiple Dharma talks or multiple talks of some kind, but uh, Dokusan and practice discussion are not therapy. I'm not a trained therapist. I'm not a licensed therapist at least. And uh, it's, you know, what happens in that, in the little room in talking about the complexity of one's life, it's always, always, as much as it can be brought back to, well, how are you practicing with that? How are you applying the teachings of Buddha? How are you applying Dharma to your life, to these particularities of one's daily life, whether they're extraordinary circumstances or just mundane day-to-day, -day, you know, chopping wood, carrying water, having a cup of tea, eating a bowl of rice, right? So running the whole gamut of human experience, how are we practicing with this? How are we turning towards liberation and waking up instead of uh, sinking in a, uh, in, a, in a struggle, which we do, you know, will do for some time as well. The, um, this family style, so I think I have probably said more times than I can count, I have passed on the teaching that I received from many different teachers of Soto Zen's family style, this phrase, menmitsu no kafu, which is careful attention to detail is the family way. It's wind. Uh, but the family way is this careful attention to detail care being one big aspect of it. How do we take care of even the most minute details of our lives? Even the things that we think of as being kind of beneath our care, <laughs> like shitting, <laughs> right? I mean, even shitting is something that you take care of in Soto Zen. So this family way, there are a number of different uh, ways that I can, that I want to describe this. And a lot of these come from, uh, these come from one of the, this article that um, a really fantastic scholar, William Bodiford wrote on the topic of Dharma transmission. So he says of the family style, what makes it family style 
this idea that there is an ancestry. We have, uh, as I said, you know, uncles and some aunts and grandparents and great, 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 great grandparents like the Buddha, <laughs> like Nagarjuna, like Vasubandhu, like Dogen, like Kazan, right? Like Bodhidharma. These are all in our lineage. These are all people. These are, you know, we're descendants from these people. When you, when you enter into the family of Soto Zen, these are your, your forebears. And we talk about them as, you know, my Dharma sister, my Dharma brother, right? um, my Dharma sibling. And then, you know, there's the ones that are a little bit removed. So, you know, the whole Rinzai line is still in our family. And actually, when you look at the lineage papers, the Rinzai lineage is included in the Soto lineage. Um, I'm not going to say more about that and how that came to be, but it's also another fascinating story. Another aspect of this family style is this idea of giving birth. Giving birth to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. If you were able to uh, be, in, uh, in pr be present in person for the ordination ceremony, you would have heard a lot of this kind of talk. This was two weeks ago. We had a Bodhisattva initiation ceremony. And I haven't actually publicly apologized, which I will just do so now, for those people who came to the ceremony on Zoom and uh, sat in complete silence. That was uh, one, of the, one of the many uh, mistakes that, that make up our practice. But in that ceremony, there's um, this idea is expressed of, now you are a child of Buddha, right? You are now born as a bodhisattva in this line. Right? You're now taking your place in the lineage. And in, as part of the ordination ceremony, uh, the, the ordinands receive, you know, maybe you've seen this, they receive this little square paper that when you open it all up, it is the lineage chart and it has their name which is another aspect of the familial style, is that ordinands receive a new name. They become part of this family. They receive this whole lineage, right? They're now welcomed into like, now you're, you're part of the family. And if you go to Soto Zen temples anywhere in the world, they will take you in as family. Which is actually, I, I have to say, if you ever have a chance to travel and go to other temples, Please do this, and you will see what I mean. Yeah. You will be fed and clothed and, and you know, taken care of. Um, so then the, the Dharma name you're given when you, you know, join the family. I mean, this is all very culty, um, which, you know, it is. It's a, Buddhism is a cult. It's a 2,500-year-old cult. Um, you're given a new name. Which, you know, in, you know, we, you don't actually need to use your name. And actually, apparently, I, I just found out that in Japan, uh, the practice of taking on one's Dharma name and using that as your name was like abolished in the 1800s. And now they use their secular names. Go figure. <laughs> um, there's also, as part of this family style, there's uh, a high degree of... Um, attention paid to the ritual aspects of marking 
certain events, as I mentioned before, funerals, memorial services. In Japan, they say, and this is kind of funny, they say that when you're born, you're, you're Shinto, or like you, you know, you're taken care of by the Shinto, the Shinto priest takes care of you when you're born. When you get married, it's in the Christian tradition. <laughs> the Japanese have these hotels that are just for marriages. They're just there for wedding ceremonies where people who aren't even Christian <laughs> will come in and have a Christian wedding. You know, well, they'll get the ball, get, you know, the, the gown and the tux and, you know, the whole thing. And it's like, so when you're born, you're Shinto. <laughs> when you're married, you're, you're Christian. And then when you die, you're Buddhist. <sighs> my own mother, some of you may know that my mom is uh, uh, Japanese. And when I got involved in Zen, I didn't get involved in Zen through my family at all, actually. Not, not even slightly. Um, um, but when I started practicing Zen, my mom was worried about me. She said, I don't want you to be Zen. I don't want you to do this. And she, you know, I moved to Tassajara and she was aghast. She even, she came to visit me at one point and stayed for like a week and, you know, in my, stayed in my little cabin with me. And uh, she, she said something like, I don't know how you can stand it here. It's so peaceful. <laughs> There's no internet. <laughs> Um, yeah, so she was, uh, she herself felt like uh, what when I probed her about what her, uh, her disappointment was in my going down this path, you know, especially from reading some of these stories of, you know, these mothers who are so happy about their children becoming priests, you know. Um, but for me, she said, I don't want you to, uh, I want you to live. I don't want you to be focused on death. So for her, growing up in Japan, Buddhism was associated with death, not with birth and celebrations like marriage. Right. Of course, from my perspective, yeah, death is death and birth, birth and death, these are things that these are this is life. And so for me, it's very much about how do I live my life? Right. Um Another aspect of this family, this family style, is this idea that what the, the ritual implements or the things, the, the resources, don't belong to me or to you. They belong to the family. One really beautiful example of this is when we held the, um, the investiture ceremony um, at Austin Zen Center after Rohatsu two and a half years ago. Um, two and a half years yes two and a half years ago uh one a friend of mine who is also a soto zen priest tenku ruff she came for that rohatsu and for the ceremony and she gave me a gift and it's not really giving me a gift it's giving the temple a gift but the gift was a kotsu so as you know it's the teaching stick which i actually probably should have with me but teaching stick this, you know, this uh, curved piece of wood, right? She gave me one of those that had belonged to Blanche. She had inherited from, I think, Susan Postal, who had inherited it from Blanche. And I have to say, like, you go spend some time with somebody like Mel, people are constantly giving Mel all kinds of things. And he, you know, graciously accepts them, but then he passes them along. It's like this, you know, the resources of a temple 
they go to who's going to use them, who's going to, who's going to use them, who's going to need them. Um, and so I have a whole, actually, I've got a bookshelf with like stuff that's like going to go to people <laughs> at some point, you know, and some point somebody's going to need something and it's like, ah, I have this. This is perfect for you. And, um, you know, I get to pass along things. So I get to be a steward and hold on to it until the right time. And then I get to give it away. And that's very much a family practice, right? That kind of practices have those kinds of practices happen within families all the time. And then another aspect of this familial kind of relationship is this idea that, you know, people uh, like in a family, you have all these children, potentially, maybe one or 10 or who knows how many children you have. Some of those children stay on and take up the family business. Right? They carry on with the traditions. They learn the secret recipes, this, you know, how to make the, you know, the specific things that are like, oh, this is, this is something that our family makes, right? Some people stay on and take care of the, you know, the day-to-day the -day at the temple. And then some people go off and do other things, right? They go off and, and learn new skills. Sometimes they're not practicing Buddhism in the same, you know, con concentrated way. They're going out and becoming MBAs and starting businesses, right? But as with any other family, there is this kind of expectation. I don't know if it's an expectation. Yeah, I think it's an expectation that if you're a child of this family and you go off and you make money, that you contribute some back to the temple. If you go off and learn skills that can be useful, you come back to your temple and you offer those skills. Uh, we see a lot of these uh, examples just within uh, the San Francisco Zen Center. I can think of uh, Suzuki Roshi sent uh, one of his priests, Paul Disco, who is a woodworker. He sent Paul Disco to Japan to learn Japanese wood make, woodworking. And I don't know if you uh, have heard of Paul Disco or have seen his work, but he is a master Japanese carpenter and has been the creator of many beautiful, beautiful temples here in the United States, two beautiful buildings, many of which are at Tassajara. Um, for those of you who are tech, techie people, you may know that Larry Ellison uh, of, I guess, was it Oracle? I can't remember what Larry Ellison was from, but he has a whole Zen village that he had Paul Disco create, right? But Paul Disco came back and he most, one of the most recent projects that he worked on was the Thatch Gate at Tassajara, which was a replacement from the original gate that he made before he went off and learned how to be a Japanese carpenter. The Kaisando at Tassajara, the Founders Hall, is also uh, one of Paul Disco's creations. So Paul was sent out to go learn this skill and then came back with the skill. Another example of this is uh, Maya Wender, who was supported by the San Francisco Zen Center to go to Japan and learn tea ceremony. She is a master teacher. She's returned to Green Gulch. She's been at Green Gulch for probably, her, but besides being in Japan for the time she was there and when she was at Tassajara for the time she was the Tonto there, she now has a, a fully operational tea house built for the practice of learning tea at Green Gulch. It's absolutely beautiful. And I know uh, some of you here have studied with her. 
again, she was sent out to learn the skill and she brought it back. Right. So there's that family aspect of, uh, of this as well. Um, in terms of <clears throat> hmm. Where was I going to go for this? Oh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this example that Reb, uh, I mean, maybe Reb talks about it in, in lots of different ways, but I remember at one point during a practice period, he told this story about, um, again, kind of like this family, this family style story. He told the story of like, uh, uh, how how people come to Zen and kind of go through like the go through the process of becoming part of the family, right? You can go th come through the process and become a part of the family, a, a distant relative, or you can get really close in, right, and start sprouting your own Dharma heirs. <laughs> the story he told is that of a that uh, stuck with me is that of a china shop. He describes this china shop. You know, this shop that sells, you know, uh, bowls and cups and, you know, teacups and bowls and saucers and pottery, right? This China pottery shop. At the level of the street, maybe even outside the store, right in front, there might be a big bin and it might be like, you know, 100 yen for a bowl. And there's all these bowls in there, these ceramic bowls. And people just walking past on the street can partake of the china from the, the china shop right they can look through the little bargain bin and see something they like and they can go and buy it and take it home with them but if you go inside the china shop then it's like you have to be a little bit more careful because things may be you know on display and you have to kind of navigate your way through the china shop you you know the expression the bull in a china shop you don't want to be the bull in the china shop right you have to kind of learn how to you know be a little bit more uh, uh, have some decorum <laughs> when you're moving among the, the objects of the, the China objects, right? So that you don't jostle a table and end up having to pay for something that you didn't want. <laughs> right. So, and then he, this, this, this kind of analogy goes further. When you get to know China and you start to be able to appreciate some of the firing techniques, for example, right? You may have a, uh, develop a, a sense of like what it took to make this particular bowl, what tradition it's in, right? You can geek out on anything, right? And China is no exception. Pottery is no exception. As you get more and more involved in the intricacies of, you know, what makes a tea bowl, this kind of tea bowl or that kind of tea bowl, right? Then you might be uh, invited into further levels of the store, up to the point where there's a little back, you know, there's a back room of the store that only some people get to go into. It's not like people aren't welcome. It's just that, you know, you only, you need it, only the people who have been practicing tea or practicing pottery would actually know anything about what they're seeing. So this little back room may have a locked glass case with some very exquisite pottery, very fine china that is, you know, maybe very delicate. The china shop owner may not let you see it if you are just coming in off the street, right? But if you hang around, learn some of the, uh, you know, the, the uh, whatever it is that is there is to learn with regard to China, the China shop owner would be very excited to let you back into the back room and say, ooh, look at this beautiful piece right here, 
right? Knowing that you're able to appreciate it. So Reb gave this story kind of as, you know, all the different people who come into uh, contact with this practice, right? From just curious, curious people who are walking by, you know, walking by the store, all the way down to people who are really invested and want to make this part of their life, right? Uh, and then how much of a part of this life? Right? So running the full spectrum. The, um, um, I guess, what does this have to do with the Austin Zen Center or with you actually as practitioners of the Zen Center? I'm realizing that I, for some reason, I don't even see a way to see the time on my screen. Hmm. My 10 screen. 58. 58. 1058. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. I'll try and wrap this up quickly. How does this affect people at the Austin Zen Center? How does this affect Austin to have a Zen temple? There's actually more than one Zen temple in Austin, as many of you know. What does it mean to have a Zen temple in the, uh, in the center of the city? And what does it mean to have a transmitted teacher at that center? Prior to the ordination ceremony we did just two weeks ago, I think the last ceremony that happened was in December of 2015. Is that correct? I think so. It had been a long time since we had had an ordination ceremony. So Zen Center, this, the Austin Zen Center, we we're incredibly lucky to have the space that we have. And unlike many Zen centers who are facing, uh, you know, having to close their space because they're not using their space right now. You know, Brooklyn Zen Center just shut their doors recently because I think they were paying something like $4,000 a month in rent. Maybe it was more than that. Ugh, 10, $10,000 a month in rent. Imagine what your pledges would have to look like to support a $10,000 a month space to sit in. <laughs> That's just crazy, right? So Austin Zen Center is incredibly fortunate that we, we own our space. We don't have to pay mortgage payments on our space. We still are stewards of the space and we have to you know, keep it up. And through the efforts of many, many people, we have done many repairs to the building in the last few years, starting with a major, up, uh, uh, major work done on the foundation, right? And then we found that, oh, wait a minute, the plumbing is all falling apart. So that had just got ripped out and redone the entire building had plumbing redone, the air conditioner, the water heater, all these different things all need to be maintained and we need to maintain it, all of us together. And we, we are doing that. That is what we, what we are doing. The board of directors um, who are the, uh, who take on the fiduciary and uh, responsibility the legal and financial responsibility for keeping the Zen Center going, right? They have been talking specifically about this, this question has come up uh, a number of times. 
this question of like, what is our strategic plan? And as uh, Sangha members, you all have been in the past asked, what is your vision for the Zen Center? What would you like to see? Right? Uh, strategic planning looks very different in a pandemic, right? Than it does outside of the pandemic. So I think we were interested in having some, you know, discussions about strategic plan. And I was asked a number of times by numerous board members, what's your vision for the Austin Zen Center? And different things would come up, like, do we want to build a new Zendo? Do we want to have a larger space? Do we want to have more rooms for residents? Do we want to have, you know, purchase other land and have a retreat center, right, in the hill country so that we can have sashines that are residential sashines instead of people driving in and sitting and then driving home, right? What are we, uh, what would you like to see for the center? Do we want a family program? You know, what is, what is it going to take to support the things that we want to do together as a community, right? So when asked this question, I, I think I said something like, well, it's going to major, it, a lot of it's going to have to depend on what people have the energy for, right? If I say, oh, my vision is to have a family program, but there's no families who are interested in doing that, then, you know, I won't get very far with my, my vision. Um, the questions that I ask, in, when I, you know, when I, when I'm asked that question, what's my vision for the Zen Center? Ultimately, my vision for the Zen Center is that we have a thriving community that is practicing in the lineage of Soto Zen, that there is, there are people that I can pass down the traditions to through living with in this very in familial style, right? In some ways, the question for me is how do I become dispensable, not indispensable, but dispensable. How can, how can all the things that it takes to run a Zen center become uh, so much a part of our community practice that I don't even need to be here, right? It's interesting because uh, a number of years ago, I remember meeting somebody who was uh, a regular member of the Zen center years ago, but has you know, kind of drifted off and doing other things. But he comes back every once in a while, and uh, especially for you know big big events. But one thing that he he told me was that he thought that the Zen Center really shouldn't have a single teacher. In fact, it shouldn't have teachers at all. That it should just be a community of people that you know collectively take care of the center. I think that would be beautiful. I'm not sure it would work in a sense so well. Um, because it takes a lot, there's a lot of moving parts, right? There's so much that, uh, you know, you can take when you think about this question of like, what's the vision? Your, our mind, my mind can go to like practicalities on a secular level. What is my vision for the Zen Center? And then I can get into like crunching numbers and like, well, how many people can we fit in on a Saturday morning program? And, you know, how many retreatants can we, you know, have in a, in a retreat? How many, what's the minimum number of residents that it takes to take care of the space? You know, how do we get people who are invested in the Zen Center who make it their own? You know, people who take care of our grounds, right? Who donate their time and their skills, actually. I recently saw a little video that was put out by the San Francisco Zen Center on their uh, Tassajara's work period. And I just have to say that 
like going through countless work periods, like probably 20, I've done been over to over 20 work periods there. And people come from all over the country and sometimes outside the country with their crazy skills. And they just come and they live at Tassajara for a week to three weeks and they just donate their skills and they get to hang out and be with them with the monks. And everybody eats together, they bathe together, they sit together. You know, everything is done like in this narrow valley. But it's just the, the energy of it is uh, this emptiness of the giver, receiver, and gift, right? It's just flow of energy. That's what I want for the Austin Zen Center. So how can I, in the position that I'm in, do whatever I can to pass down these traditions When I, uh, when I decided I wanted to ordain as a priest, I didn't have a sense that, oh, this means X, Y, or Z. When I came to the Austin Zen Center, I did not think that I was going to stay and become the head teacher. That was not my intention when I first came to the Austin Zen Center. Um, I thought I was just going to be one of many contributors to, to making this place go, right? to bringing practice here. And circumstances you know, came about that here I am in this position, and we're about to have this tree planting, which maybe I'll just say a few things about that. For me, the tree planting is, you know, I heard of this tradition happening. My own teacher had a tree planted at Tassajara. The, we're gonna be planting a Japanese black pine tree. And it's like, you know, it's like this big. So it's just a, practically a seedling. Um, and so it's gonna need some care. And you know what? The tree may die. And I just want to say that uh, please don't be superstitious <laughs> if, about the tree if the tree dies. <laughs> um, I think my own teacher's tree died at Tassajara. I don't know if he, they planted another one. Uh, we actually do have a Dharma transmission tree, at least one that I know of, already at the Austin Zen Center. The little red maple in the front is Kosho's Dharma transmission tree. I don't think there was a ceremony. I'm not sure. Maybe there was a small ceremony. Um, but I think that tree seems to be doing well. Yeah. This little red maple. <clears throat> so in some sense, the tree planting for me symbolize, is a symbol of uh, um, the Dharma taking root in this land, right? This space, the Dharma is taking root. Um, we are stewards of this space that we preserve and we protect it. And, and on the topic of not, take, not reading too much into the symbolism, I just have to tell this story. There was this uh, monk who at Tassajara who uh, in the space of a week, she, uh, she was wondering whether she was gonna stay at Tassajara or return to the city. And she was kind of, you know, thinking about this and kind of looking for signs. I think she was just looking for signs. And then she dropped her Oryoki bowl during a meal. Uh, I've heard that in Japan, if you drop your Oryoki bowl, you have to pay a fine. <laughs> Some part of your stipend has to be given back to the temple for, you know, for being clumsy. <laughs> anyway, she dropped her bowl and she was like, oh, what does this mean? And then later on that week, she was uh, helping somebody with sewing and she accidentally snipped a piece of her, like the corner of her rakasu. And that was like, that was it. She 
she like, okay, I need to leave. <laughs> I need to leave. This is a sign. So she's still, she's still at San Francisco Zen Center and she's been working there since then for the past, you know, 15 years, 20, almost 20 years since she left Tassajara. She's still, you know, par, she's still practicing, but um, I thought it was hilarious, not hilarious, but this, you know, the symbolism that she took it's it's beautiful and it's you know tragic both right um so what does it take to have the dharma take root here at the austin zen center this is kind of the question we're having a council meeting coming up and it's a question of like what do you need what supports you in your practice but what is the practice need too in some ways we you know we talk about how uh, we don't do zazen, that zazen does us. Right? So I want to leave people with that question of like, what does it mean for uh, the Dharma to take root? And what's, what's, um, what supports it? What nourishes it? How do we water the, the wholesome seeds that are there? Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, would anyone like to say anything? Comments, questions, musings? Uh, I wanted to thank you, Marco, for your talk, which has a lot for us to think about. Um, I did want to say one thing, though, about the family tradition as it's um, practiced in Japan. I have very little experience directly with Japan. I went once for uh, a ceremony through the Soto Shu, the, the Soto uh, kind of organization, the, the, the big corporate <laughs> Soto organization in Japan with other Americans who were traveling for that purpose. And together with the ceremony, there was an entire uh, two days, I think it was, devoted to um, how to make Soto Zen, which is, the, which is the most popular form of Zen in Japan, how to make it not just funeral Zen, Mm. kind of what your mother was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and they were looking to us in America for uh, examples, for example, or for Zen as it had been distributed throughout the world, you know, in South America, uh, in, in uh, Hawaii and other places in Europe, yeah. where it had to be everyday Zen, because that's the constituency and, and people wanted to practice so-called monastically. Um, and they were very self-critical, pointing to high rates of uh, suicide, um, alcoholism of all kinds of, of, you know, expressions of human suffering. And this was also six months after the big tsunami of 2010, which had created such loss and devastation. So they, they were dedicating themselves to relieving suffering and, for, and to find ways for people to practice in their lives. So it's kind of on us to carry forward that aspect of the family way. Thank you for that, Joe. Yeah, I, actually I've seen, uh, some of you have met uh, Sato Ryoki, who came to Austin Zen Center a number of years. Uh, he has a temple in Fukushima and was caught in the tsunami and only survived because he was able to jump from his car to a dump truck that was filled with uh, concrete. And he was managed to stay alive by, by you know, holding on to the, to the truck. 
Um, but he has, um, uh, he's got this children's program that he told me about, that he's very excited um, to bring, like having all these children come into the temple and get to play with all the ritual implements, right? Because normally children, you know, when they come into the Zen centers, they're shushed, right? <laughs> My mom has this story of her staying at her uncle's Zen temple and like she had to sleep somewhere where there was a mukugyo and she was terrified of this giant mukugyo, which is like this wooden fish um, that looks like it has this like kind of crazy demonic smile. <laughs> and she was terrified. So she's got these very bad, she had these very bad associations with Zen. So just hearing about, you know, how things are being adapted to make them more relevant to our daily life to the daily life of people who don't have, you know, the ability or the inclination to devote, you know, 15 hours a day to sitting and, you know, sweeping the grounds of a temple, right? Cutting, cutting carrots and chopping onions. Karen. Yeah, I just um, really appreciate um, your talk and thinking about how we can nourish each other and the practice. And I, I do think it's in a kind of a wonderful, amazing thing that, we've done outside of Japan, creating this sort of practice for lay people who want deep practice. Um, and, you know, I particularly feel so lucky with what we have here in Austin and the stability that we, that the center has right now, this far into COVID. Um, I, as many people know, I practiced for many years in a remote place in Alaska where we didn't have we didn't have a teacher for many years. Um, we've never had a place, you know, location. We practiced from yoga studio to garage. <laughs> um, and although that does bring a kind of attention and devotion, because if you want to do it, it's really up to you. Yeah. Um, and it also makes me deeply appreciate what Austin has. And um, I hope, you know, we can, we can just all deeply appreciate it because it's really not a given. And um, I would love it if everybody could have that kind of feeling that we had of, you know, it's up to us to do this. We can have teachers come up and visit, but showing up every day, you know, it's not happening because we want to impress a teacher. It's happening because we have to be here um, for our little community. Um, and I think we can have that kind of, kind of feeling. Um, so I just really appreciate it. And I just want to say how much I appreciate what Austin has here. Um, just deep thank yous. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. And Austin is lucky to have you. It's lucky to have all of you, and, um, you know, as Dharma holders, right? Each one of you is that carries that light out into your into your own, you know, life circumstances. Everyone you meet has the privilege and benefit of meeting a Dharma practitioner. That's big. Yes, Tim. 
Um, yeah, thank you so much um, for your talk. And um, one question came up for me that might, you know, be a kind of longer um, discussion, but I'd be interested to hear if you have any thoughts um, on the surface of it. And that is, you know, a lot of the stories of Dharma transmission seem to kind of overlap a sense of succession um, yes. or kind of handing off a particular temple or practice. So there's a lot of overlap and then maybe some difference. Um, you know, the sixth ancestor's story in particular, you know, is a story of Dharma transmission, but even more maybe a story of succession um, and how a family lineage gets created in that sense too. So I don't know if you want to say anything about the distinction between those two. Yeah, you know, I, I just, just heard the other day, just a couple of days, I happen to be, I'm in a study group with people who have received or are about to receive Dharma transmission. And uh, we're going through some texts and to hear that, um, you know, some of the practices in Japan of like Dharma transmission by a distance, which is totally not acceptable at this point. Like the Soto Zen Buddhist Association has this rule now that they all, you know, apparently voted on that you can't, uh, they won't accept any members, even if they have Dharma transmission, they won't accept you as a full member if you didn't do a certain amount of monastic practice, which is, you know, sadly, um, it prevents certain people who didn't do monastic practice, but who've sat, maybe they've done the hours by doing lots of multiple smaller retreats, but because there's this limitation, they're not able to be full members of this association. Um, that in Japan, most people who have Dharma transmission, the large, 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 some, you know, percentage, uh, they don't ever get to pass on a temple. They don't ever get to be ahead of a temple. Right. Um, and actually that the only people who are allowed to transmit are, is the abbot of a temple or the, yeah, the abbot or abbess of a temple is the only one, even with people who have Dharma transmission, only the abbot does the transmission ceremony which I was kind of surprised to hear that, that that's practiced there. Uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of succession, one of the things that also is part of the sort of family style of practice is that when you receive Dharma transmission, there is this very strong sense that you now have the responsibility to produce an error. And um, you know, that means bringing somebody up for, year, for decades, of practicing with them. Probably most people who have Dharma transmission, maybe they, may, maybe they don't even ever have an heir, but there's a very strong feeling of like, okay, well, if you don't have an heir, then there's something, you know, then there's something wrong. You're, you're slacking off. There's a, uh, in terms of like what William Bodiford said, uh, there's this, it's called the sin of cutting off the Buddha's seed <laughs> to not produce an heir, right? So I don't know if I will ever produce an heir, <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I definitely, I feel the, I feel the weight of it. I feel the responsibility of passing, passing this practice down, whether or not it, it translates into giving somebody Dharma transmission, right? And that's what's meant by passing down the, uh, uh, passing down transmission is not, ordaining people in a lay ordination ceremony. It's not ordaining priests. It's not having shusos. 
head, head, you know, head students. It's actually producing people who can then produce people who are Dharma transmitted. And I don't know that that will ever happen in my, in my, uh, in my life. However, I, I also feel like I'm a steward of the Austin Zen Center. I'm not, um, I'm not an abbot of the Austin Zen Center. I think that would be another level of like uh, responsibility. You know, being the head teacher of a center is a very different thing from being an abbot of a center. Um, an abbot has this, you know, this feeling of succession. The abbot would decide who the, their successor is. In the way, in the sense of a head teacher, I think of it as the board actually being the deciding, you know, who decide, who invites the head teacher would be the board of directors. So, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, but yeah, there's a, this is all like uh, yeah, family stuff, right? Family traditions. Are there any other, I'm gonna just check the chat dialogue. Aw, <laughs> thank you, Sherry. <laughs> Sherry writes, but you are producing many, many bodhisattvas. <laughs> you know, the idea of enlightenment and whether or not somebody has attained enlightenment is, uh, I feel like that's one of the first things that kind of, at least in my training and my background at San Francisco Zen Center, that's like one of the first things that gets beaten out of you is any concept of like, oh, this person's enlightened or that person's enlightened or enlightenment is a thing to attain even. Um, you know, there's this expression, there are no enlightened beings, just enlightened activity. You know, it comes up. Ah, Eric, like the sprouts under an oak tree. Yes, I have to say there's, um, with the Dharma transmission, there is this, there is the sense of responsibility that comes with it, right? And just to say that I think all of you have this in, in experience in your life, when you take on responsibility, um, it's clarifying, right? All these other things that could be, these other could be's kind of can fall away, because now actually, no, I'm, this is what I'm responsible for, right? It's very clarifying. Um, in this sense, when you, uh, you know, participate in a practice period, the first thing that you get is this kind of like, well, what are you committing to? And this idea of like, once you've committed to it, then you can stop thinking about it, right? And this practice of Suzuki Roshi's of like, when the wake up bell rings, just get up, right? Don't, no thought. Because you know what happens when you when you allow, you know, your thoughts to come in. Then it's like, well, you know, I feel a little bit. Is that a stomach ache? Oh no, I got a little bit of a headache. Or oh, I worked an extra hour yesterday. I'm going to sleep in an extra hour. You know, all those things can come up to like lure you away from just getting up. But the practice of you know, bell rings or you know, wake up. You hear the bell. Get up. Right at the end of soji, when you hear the clack, put your rake down. Right. It's not like oh, let me just you know fuss around with the rake a little bit more, or I just need to clean this little thing up. I mean, these are all these, there are so many practices that, um, there are so many practices and so many like people like wonder, myself included, why do we do it this way, right? I'd say nine times out of 10, there's a reason, but you don't know it. And maybe the person doing it doesn't know it either. <laughs> yeah. So, 
if there's nothing else, I want to thank everybody for your practice. Thank you very much for uh, being here today. And I hope to see, um, see folks at the tree planting ceremony. I, um, I'm happy to say that in the tree planting ceremony, I get to, I get to be, a, uh, I get to be part of it, but I also get to receive it. And, um, it's, it's lovely to be the recipient of a ceremony as well. So thank you, Choro, for being the doshi for the ceremony and for everybody who's uh, come together to, to make it happen. Um, thank you very much. Privilege and pleasure. Thank you.